Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I am so thrilled to welcome our guest, not because he's one of the UK's most distinguished historians, but because his new book is a powerful read that also makes an incredible gift for the history lover in your life. Surian Kershaw is the author of To Hell and Back, The End, uh, Making Friends with Hitler, and he is one of the greatest British historians of 20th century Europe. He's written several biographies of Adolf Hitler. In 2002, he received his knighthood for services to history. He is a fellow of the British Academy, the Royal Historical Society. And his new book asks the question, how far can a single leader change the course of human history? And how do these leaders use what we call personalities that sometimes give them the ability to do whatever they wish? The book is Personality, and Power, Builders and Destroyers of Modern Europe. And it's an incredible study in which Syrian Kershaw looks at 12 major historical figures, four dictators, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, uh, a couple of national autocrats, Tito and Franco, and then democratic leaders, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Helmut Kohl, de Gaulle, Churchill, and uh, for me, most fascinatingly, Mikhail Gorbachev, a man who rose in a totalitarian system, and then ultimately helped destroy it. It's an amazing book about how strikingly different figures wielded power. It is a great pleasure to welcome Sir Ian Kershaw to SiriusXM. Hello, it's a great pleasure to be with you this afternoon and to look forward to our discussion. Well, thank you. I'm very, very grateful for your time. One of your early works, uh, The Hitler Myth, really showed how Hitler's power was dependent on the image, the propaganda, and the public perception but of course, there's no way to understate this theory of, of charismatic leadership, the charisma of the leader. And it's created by the following of his true believers who, who somehow believe that he or she is to some degree a chosen one. And of course, you point out very often these images are manufactured by a movement or manufactured by the state. I'm very curious, sir, to begin, what was it that made you want to adopt this format in the new book, these dozen profiles, half of them dictators, and the other Democrats, who all shaped the 20th century in Europe. The key criterion that I had for the choice was, does each of these individuals, did each of these individuals affect significantly the history of Europe in the 20th century? And once I looked at that question and answered it in the affirmative, say, yes, each of these individuals did personally affect the history of Europe, then they uh, figured as 
um, as characters in this book. So that was my key um, element of choice then as to how important they were as makers of history in Europe. And um, in each case, they're not, these are not mini biographies, but they're an attempt to understand how these individuals gain power and exercise that power. And the key thing then is to what extent did that was their impact such that they personally um, affected history, changed history for millions of individuals. And in that writing, you, of course, give us all new biographies of these figures and really allow us to view them in very different ways. Through the prism of the power and how they wielded it, you begin the book with Karl Marx in 1852 when he said, Men make their own history, but not as they please, in conditions of their own choosing, but rather under those directly encountered, given, and inherited. In your research, sir, how far is a leader's power shaped by personality, and, and how much is it shaped by circumstance? There really doesn't seem to be any absolute formula, is there? There is no formula. You can't reduce it to a mathematical formula, so many percentage personalities, so many percentage um, uh, impersonal structural cons- c- components. But I did find the quotation from Karl Marx that you just um, read out very instructive in this direction, that um, I've never been a Marxist, but I thought that the way in which Marx put the question there, put the point anyway, with regard to the person he was looking at, uh, Louis Bonaparte, uh, whom he thought was uh, an absolute um, zero in terms of his personality and everything. So Marx was actually trying to understand how an individual like that, who um, was not a, in any, by any stretch of the imagination, a great figure in his view, but rather a clown who happened mm-hmm. to be in the right position at the right time to gain the support of people to take power in France. Now that, if you apply that and then look at it, although we can't work out mathematically any formula for this, what we can say uh, is the ob- make is the obvious point that um, people are both made by the conditions in which they're faced, but also they shape the conditions that they inherit in new ways. So that if you take the individuals that I'm concerned with now, each of them Please. comes to power in, in the form of crisis. And the deeper the crisis, the greater the potential for that individual to have an impact on history. And we, we look at, if we just look at the, uh, the impact of Lenin, of Stalin, of Hitler, of Churchill, then we see obviously these individuals did through their own actions affect the lives of millions of Europeans and some, to some extent of people outside Europe. Um, but uh, they were all the products of specific conditions and without those conditions these individuals would not have come to power. So it's a combination of both which, and although we're not unable to measure it, we can say the structural conditions present individuals who have an instinct for power with a certain opportunities mm. to utilize their personal characteristic trait, character traits and then make their own mark on history. They are makers of history, but they're also made by it. That's what's completely fascinating. And of course, Americans have no idea how to relate to the concept of a clown in the right place at the right time getting power. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I did find it fascinating, though, to see what were the conditions what were the crises that allowed different autocrats or Democrats to attain power? Obviously, in the case of Hitler, you've got this incredible economic depression. In the case of Mussolini, you've got the, the collapse of, of parliament uh, in, in Italy. And, and in the case of Lenin, it's just a, a broad social revolution. 
On the other hand, some of these leaders that we now consider successful are ones who rose up to fight the crises created by Hitler and Mussolini. Certainly Churchill and de Gaulle are viewed as saviors of their nation because of how they responded to the crisis of war. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, that The crises spawned different crises, and um, the leaders that you just mentioned, Churchill and de Gaulle in particular, uh, were leaders who came to the fore in conditions which, um, uh, in which they thrived in contending with the mega-crisis that they faced at the time. Churchill, after all, his entire reputation, the reputation that lasts to this very day, and um, people think in, in, in Britain but elsewhere of Churchill as one of the great 20th century leaders, that reputation depends very heavily, if not completely, upon his time as war leader during the Second World War, and in particular on his role in 1940. And we have to bear in mind that Churchill, when he was made Prime Minister in, 19, in May 1940, was the first choice, neither the Conservative Party, uh, in which he, his reputation was actually quite checkered at the time, nor of the, of the King of, of, of England. Uh, so Churchill came to power in very unpropitious circumstances with with the uh, the German army threatening to uh, invade the country, Britain at the lowest ebb in its entire history, and yet he contended with that crisis, he surmounted it, he um, was the person who uh, basically mastered that immediate crisis and uh, Britain uh, Britain fought on, and it wasn't mm. a foregone conclusion that Britain would fight on because the main other contender for power, Lord Halifax, actually wanted to make overtures towards a possible peace settlement with Mussolini and later mm. on with, with Hitler. And the history of Britain, of uh, Europe, and of the world outside would have been very different if Halifax had been Prime Minister instead of Churchill. The same with de Gaulle. He came to power in very unprofessional circumstances. First of all, the leader of a small number of, of exiled French, uh, Frenchmen in, in, in Britain. And then gradually, as the war turned against Germany, became the, seen as the, more widely as the leader of the Free French. And then subsequently, of course, he, he became uh, the leader of France, uh, president of France in peacetime when he came to deal with the second crisis, that of the Algerian War in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So these figures came to power to face with massive crisis. They, the way they reacted to crisis and the personality traits that they had enabling them to uh, react to crisis were mm -hmm. the key factors. And that has, um, has meant that these individuals are, have lasting and deservedly lasting uh, reputations as very significant figures in their country's history. Indeed. But what I found so interesting and repeatedly compelling was how, as we know, anyone who's lived through the Cold War or lived through the Iraq War, these crises can be fabricated as well. Um, I will admit I didn't know much about the war scare in Russia in 1927 when uh, Pravda was publishing fake news that, that Britain was going to invade the USSR. And this was what helped enable Stalin to gain leadership. It was just fear based on rumor, conjecture, and lies. Yes, that's right. And um, the fact that these, these systems were still so so fragile and so um, unconsolidated also enabled them, of course, to benefit from uh, crisis upon crisis of the way you've just described. And, and so you can, the, the bigger the crisis, the more potential then the leader who came to power had to uh, forge the 
future of, of his own country, and it was his in every case except for the one Mrs. Thatcher, um, and uh, in, in this book. So uh, it explains in different ways the path to power of each of the individuals. And yet, of course, they needed certain characteristics in order to exploit that crisis to their own ends and to gain power in the first place before they could actually utilize it. And the personality traits were different, uh, the individuals were different, although there were some common factors to it as well. What is interesting for Americans is that we just survived an election where we're getting very used to a lot of these manufactured crises. Obviously, here we're, we're told routinely by certain politicians to be terrified of the migrants at the border or trans children are going to ruin girls sports or China deliberately released a virus. It seems like this has always been a constant in political thinking and campaigning to try to have these existential, often fabricated crises. How did Mussolini do it? I mean, did Mussolini just use fear of communism to allow him to rally all the, the frightened Catholics to get behind him? Yes, he certainly did. And um, the, he, he uh, utilized the fear, not just utilized, but embroidered and enhanced the fear of communism, which actually was a very uh, minor fear, that, uh, a very minor factor in Italian politics. The, pol- the communists were nowhere near gaining power, but Mussolini was able to suggest that they were an imminent threat and uh, to exploit that for the, in the interest of the, uh, the still young fascist movement. And that the elaborated fear of outsiders or of um, internal enemies is, has been a feature of uh, the rise to power of um, autocrats and dictators wherever they are. And, of course, the, to continue with that, uh, that attack on internal enemies once they've gained power. You see that par excellence in the case of Hitler, but you see it in, in, in all these uh, dictatorships that I'm dealing with here. Stalin, for example, is, into, is paranoia, is yes. outright paranoia about, about enemies, external and internal, the way in which he continued to uh, search for and eventually to destroy Trotsky in exile in Mexico in 1940. But Trotsky had figured as the sort of the key uh, fear element for, uh, as regards Stalin, the, the, the boom man in, in, in Russian and Soviet politics, the person who had to be sought out and destroyed. And that was a, a feature of the politics in uh, modern fashion with the, at that time, the modern technology that uh, Mussolini and Hitler exploited fully, uh, the use of radio and of um, of newspapers, of course, now we're in the in the era of 24/7 news and the social media and the internet. Very different um, media uh, landscape than that which existed at the time. But fake news, although the term fake news is is recent, uh, what these what these dictators were doing. Uh, and other autocratic leaders too was utilizing fake news at the time to exactly. um, to develop the uh, the bogeyman of the of the internal enemy that needed to be destroyed. So fake news is nothing new, even if the ty- even if the term itself is. Yes, Hitler called it uh, the Lügenpresse, right? The lying press. That's right. Yeah, indeed, he did. Yes, and uh, Goebbels was um, the, his propaganda minister was the expert in in uh, the in the notion of the the lying press, and the, the bigger the lie, the, the more effective it would be if it were told often enough, was Goebbels' motto, and uh, he put that into operation. And uh, that was the case in Nazi Germany, but it was also the case in, in these other dictatorships too. So, um, yeah, nothing new in that regard except the term, I think.
We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash You know, it's interesting when you group these successful, charismatic, democratic leaders with these successful fascist dictators, you write about all of them. Each had extraordinary determination, strength of character to surmount hardship and setbacks, a relentless will to succeed, and a level of egocentrism that demanded extreme loyalty and subordinated everybody and everything to the attainment of desired goals. They were all driven individuals. Right now, Americans are witnessing this transition where uh, the supporters of Donald Trump are beginning to pledge blind obedience to uh, the governor of Florida. It is fascinating to see how for so many of these leaders throughout history, it all came down to a personality cult. It seems like that's essential for the success of any of these individuals. Yes, it is. Um, uh, But of course, as you've just been implying, once, once the individuals have managed to gain power, then they have at their disposal the mass media and in the case of these dictators that I'm dealing with, of course, monopolistic control of the mass media. But even today now, as you saw in the Trump presidency, the way in which uh, he was able to utilize Twitter, for example, to his own ends, for his own ends, and and so on. It depends upon the build-up of a personality cult. In fact, we live in an era where personality, whether it's sporting personalities or pop stars or whatever, seem to be um, the center of, of, of all attention. So mm-hmm. it's natural then that politicians, much more than was the case with with um, democratic politicians for the most part in the in the 20th century, I think, with one or two notable exceptions. Um, but now politicians have to operate within a, a type of personality cult, an invented or manufactured personality cult, and sometimes that um, that develops quite uh, shameless uh, levels as it did with, in our. In, in, in Britain with uh, the way in which um, a personality cult was built up around Boris Johnson, for instance. Yes. So uh, personality is, is uh, highlighted by, by modern media in sometimes um, ways which are, which are different from the 20th century, obviously, but which have, in a way, the same goal, to um, focus all the, all the political attention on one individual and bring out that individual's real or manufactured personality traits. I found it fascinating to learn details about Franco, um, like how he just wore down his own ministers by having these cabinet meetings that would last all day, all night, 
and not allow toilet breaks. I mean, you, you describe Franco's bladder control as extraordinary. <laughs> yes, I was struck by that, too, that um, he was able to last out for, for seven-hour cabinet meetings without ever needing to go to the bathroom. And these poor cabinet ministers are often in agony as they were arresting the fact they didn't dare to ask permission to go and yet just had to sit there and suffer. And, um, of course, when, when about in the early 1970s, Franco then interrupted a cabinet meeting to go to the bathroom himself, everybody knew that was the, that the end of the regime couldn't be far away. So it, it's uh, uh, just a, a little anecdotal detail. But it does actually say something about the way in which these dictators have to protect their own image somehow. That uh, It's the same with, with other um, leaders that... Uh, Hitler used to stand for hours for march past of the Wehrmacht. He could hardly interrupt those. Hang on just a minute, I need to disappear out to the bathroom. So um, in all these cases, then, the, the, although it's a humorous, semi-humorous comment I'm making in the book there, but there is an element um, dictators have to behave in particular ways to enhance their, their public persona, their, the image that the propaganda has created for them. And um, Franco, although the bladder control issue was not one which was revealed to the, uh, the press at the time, nonetheless, um, in a way, it does say something indirectly about the way in which uh, leading personalities have to behave in public. Mm-hmm. And it builds the myth as well. I, I, I want to ask you briefly about Mrs. Thatcher, because it's interesting, the way you describe her and what her personal charisma lent to her political movement, how she thrived on abrasive argument and combative dispute. She had workaholic habits and forensic interrogative powers as a lawyer to carry her case against cabinet colleagues who were less well-prepared or more submissive in their character. We have plenty of politicians like that in America, but they're not successful. What was it that allowed Margaret Thatcher to have these traits, which again could be quite irritating in an incompetent American senator, and yet it drove her to the prime minister? Uh, well, what enabled her to do it was the fact that she managed to gain power it, 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 against the odds, in a way. She was a woman in a man's political world, and she came from a provincial market town in, in England, which was not the usual background for conservative politicians. And she really managed to uh, come to power despite these two significant disadvantages. And once in power then, she had the stubbornness, the resilience, the determination, and also the argumentative skills to be able to sustain herself against opposition within her own cabinet. So mm-hmm. I think it's the fact that once these people are in power, then their personality traits really come to the fore because they have yeah. then the aura of power attached to them. It's then far less easy to dismiss these, these people as, as, uh, as could be done in opposition. And right. so Mrs. Thatcher then was able to do that in the early 1980s against significant opposition and push through what were very unpopular popular policies until, uh, in certain ways, fortune came to her aid with the Falklands War of 1982, which saw her popularity, which was then rocky in, in, in Britain. Her popularity uh, momentarily rose very considerably. She was helped by, uh, by a split in, on the, on the, the uh, left of the political spectrum and was able then to increase her majority in the 1983 election. Yeah. And as happens with so many of these 
these people are in power for a long period of time then, um, the power itself begins to go to their head. They believe in their own yep. infallibility, and she made big mistakes towards the end of her time in office. But um, that's, I think, the uh, many people have these character traits but don't get anywhere near power. Once they do, then it's much more difficult to stop them once they have their feet through the door. Indeed, as you, as you put it, single-minded pursuit of easily definable goals and ideological inflexibility combined with tactical acumen enable a specific individual to stand out and gain a following. It's true in politics. It's true in social media. But going through your work and seeing all of these, well, these stories, how these, these people achieve this power, often murderous power, what brings the power to an end, it brings us to Mr. Gorbachev, who's a very, very unique example of wielding power. He's someone who came to power in a totalitarian system and used his will to try to dismantle the very system that brought him power. What did you discover about Mr. Gorbachev in your research for the book? Um, I, it, Gorbachev is indeed an extraordinary figure, and um, he's one of the very few people in the book that I find sympathetic as an individual, as a character. Uh, nice. But Gorbachev came to power in 1985 with the Soviet Union facing uh, huge difficulties, economic um, and also in uh, financial. And yet, um, uh, it wasn't, most analysts agree, it wasn't likely to collapse uh, within the immediate future. Uh, had long-term problems which would have been difficult to overcome, but it didn't face imminent collapse. Gorbachev then sought to reform the Soviet Union. He was a dyed-in-the-wall Leninist, supported Lenin, supported the communist system, had grown up through, came to come to power within it, and uh, he wanted to reform it. He didn't want to break it. And um, he, he quickly came to the conclusion that in order to change the economic system, which was malfunctioning, he had to change the political system. He introduced these two things, st uh, structural reform um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of his uh, uh, perestroika and uh, freedom of much more liberal freedom of speech in Glasnost, which were popular reforms. But what he found out within a couple of years, by, by 1987 or thereabouts, was that these reforms were running away with him. He couldn't any longer control them. And he spoke in, the, in his memoirs about that, that he'd lost control over the very forces that he unleashed. And by 1990, they were destroying him and actually destroying the Soviet Union. That's and right. um, by then, his, but only just by then, his popularity, which had been enormous at the start, was actually um, uh, sagging massively until it collapsed totally. And uh, so we have this ambivalent legacy of Gorbachev that on the one hand, he gave freedom to millions in Europe. He helped along with President Reagan to halt temporarily, it seemed anyway, to halt the uh, nuclear arms race and to offer a new uh, horizon, new freedoms to the whole of Europe, new, new peace to the whole of Europe by ending the Cold War. So yes. Gorbachev's achievement was massive, and yet at the same time he destroyed his own country, and in a way we're seeing the indirect legacy of that with, with Putin and Putin's war against exactly. Ukraine, which Putin was um, the indirect element of Gorbachev's legacy, which brought, first of all, the chaos of the Yeltsin years, and then as a exactly. reaction to that, the onset of, to power of, uh, of Putin. Yes, people easily forget that there was an attempted Russian revolution just 30 years ago. But in closing, since you brought up Putin and Ukraine, if there's any one lesson I, I get from your book, it's that Putin, his choice to go into Ukraine will probably go down as a colossal mistake that destroyed his rule if 
it ends in defeat. But it seems that it's too early to tell, and Putin could still eke out a great big victory mark in the history books. Power, it seems, decides everything. Yes, um, it's right. It's too early to tell. Um, but that Putin's invasion of Ukraine was a mistake, a, a miscalculation of epic proportions, I think we can say that. But of course, we can't, one element of each of the chapters that I write on these individuals in the 20th century is I have a section dealing with their legacy. In the case of Putin and 21st century leaders, it's still too early to say what that legacy is, and we will have to wait for some time. And uh, And yet, Part of that legacy is certainly, as you said, the miscalculation that's led to the destruction of, of, of so much of Ukraine and how that war will end. Nobody as yet can say for certain. Syrian Kershaw is the author of Personality and Power, Builders and Destroyers of Modern Europe. Thank you so much, sir. It's a completely fascinating book, and it made me really feel like I got a whole new perspective on all these historical figures that I didn't think I had anything left to learn about. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the excellent discussion and for your good questions. Thank you. It's very nice to talk to you. Okay, thank and you. And to you as well. Thank you. And we'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Imagine having one of the biggest, most prestigious, famous jobs in the world. Comfort opulence for the rest of your life, but you can never live like a normal person. You can't love who you want. Your parents aren't close to you and they don't know how to be. You only get one promotion in this job for your life and you have to wait 70 years to get it. People of Earth, let's talk about King Charles III. Christopher Anderson is the critically acclaimed author of 18 New York Times bestsellers, which have been translated into more than 25 languages across the globe. A couple of his books, including The Day Diana Died and uh, The Day John Died, about JFK Jr., reached number one. You've probably read his stuff in many publications, ranging from New York Times to Life to Vanity Fair, and of course, his many media appearances. He is uh, a prestigious expert on the royal family, has written extensively about it, and manages to make every conversation about the royal family sound impossibly intelligent and not in the least gossipy, which uh, I've always admired. His new book is The King, The Life of Charles III, and it is a very frank, very honest, and very, in my opinion, caring look at one of the most complex and enigmatic figures of our time, Charles, who you don't get to call Prince anymore. It is an authoritative chronicle of his life. It is very, very honest, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Christopher Anderson to the show. Hello, sir. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having me. 
Hi, before we even start, let me ask. I, I just got back from London last week. Um, how exhausted are you? Have you slept in the last six weeks, sir? It seems like it's been an exceptionally crazy time for someone in your line of work. It has been. As a matter of fact, today, as you may know, the king and uh, queen were pelted with eggs in northern England. Yes, I did. It was I, quite, quite I heard incident. all about that. Yeah, it, you yeah. know, it, 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 uh, in going through your book, it's, it's amazing. It brings back things I felt about Charles since I was a child and first became aware of him. Uh, a real compassion, a real sympathy for how awkward it seems he was predestined to be. Um, it just sort of seems like he never had a shot at learning how to fake being a normal person. And I, I, I understand the critiques, but there's a lot of humanity in this book. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it with you. Uh, and uh, I guess the most obvious question is, what do people who don't watch The Crown and don't follow the royals, what do people need to understand about this man's particular childhood? Oh, my God. Childhood is everything. You know, uh, Winston yeah. Churchill on meeting three-year-old Charles uh, and seeing that he's such a sensitive, pensive, introspective kid caught in this already at the age of three. Uh, you know, he said he, he thinks, he says he's too young. He's young to think so much is the way Churchill put it. But, you know, it, it's very, very, it's nothing less than heartbreaking, I think, when you really consider the degree to which he was emotionally, Charles was emotionally abandoned by his mother, you know, we see in recent years, we've seen this very kind of touchy feely relationship between uh, the Queen and, and the then Prince of Wales. But yes. that wasn't that we, as you know, that wasn't always the case. I mean, there's that 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 one encounter that I think says it all. I've talked about it before, but just really sums it all up. When Charles, four years old, goes to see his mother's been away for six months, her first tour of the Commonwealth, the young Queen. And uh, she's celebrated, of course, internationally. She comes back and he rushes up to meet Mummy, but Mummy is, uh, will have none of it and kind of shoves him aside because she has to greet the adult dignitaries. And when he finds, she finally does address him, she reaches down. And this was photographed, there's newsreels and everything, and shakes yeah. his hand as she if he was a middle-aged man. <laughs> and of course, you just contrast that with Diana, who was, would sweep you know, Harry and, and uh, William up in her arms every time she was gone for you know, a weekend. So, exactly. Um, yeah, a big contrast. And, you know, there's one thing. I, I covered the 25th anniversary. This you know, it makes me feel ancient. But I did cover the Silver Jubilee of the Queen in 1977. I was senior editor, actually, at People at the time, and running the Royals coverage there, among other things. But I just remember the whole royal family coming into Westminster Abbey. And, yes, they were historical figures almost. You know, But they were kind of – they had a waxworks quality about them. They really yes. weren't, as you pointed out, you know, multidimensional people. We didn't see them as human beings. And it really, this is three years before Diana was on the scene. So when she came, you know, obviously everything changed. You know, she was just this whirlwind that uh, altered the way the family functions and the way we perceive them. And there would never be a crown or, or my books or any, any particular interest. Right. Uh, I don't it weren't I for mean, her. Yeah, Princess Anne couldn't do it all on her own. You know, it... it, it <laughs> Nothing against Princess sure. Margaret either, um, but in, in, oh, yeah. in looking at looking at the narrative, I, I I I've always felt this compassion for this gentleman, and mm -hmm. I, I find his his stiffness so in contrast with his military service or his absolutely dynamic forward thinking commitment to climate science. But I have to remind myself in going through your text that this is a man whose mother became the monarch 
because literally you're not allowed to openly love who you want to love in this job. And the amount of fear that must be instilled on a cellular level when one's whole life is a being of service in a very public way where what you and I take for granted for freedom doesn't exist. Right, right. And then we're seeing now, of course, the, uh, uh, the Harry and, and Megan bringing that back to the forefront of everyone's minds. I mean, I think uh, Charles, more than anyone, well, you know, he's, I think he's the most paradoxical, complicated fellow to ever sit on the throne, to be quite honest, or a figure. I because agree. the queen, you know, it, because the queen, of course, was, you know, she knew, she was, you knew who she was. We knew who she was. It was all about duty, uh, but not a very complicated woman. This guy has been through the ringer emotionally. Uh, and, and I write about, for example, his reaction to Diana's death, which I think would take a lot of people by surprise, you know, because he was completely shattered by it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I and there's this, this scene in the hospital uh, where I, I interviewed the, uh, the nurses who were there and they saw him uh, when he walked in the room and saw Diana laying in her coffin, her, her body for the first time. And, you know, he nearly passed out. It looked as if he'd been hit by an unseen force, as one of the nurses said. It just was um, uh, staggering for him. But he he rallied, you know, he I mean, he, he sort of brought the monarchy to the brink of, of disaster by insisting on loving Camilla. That's right. And, and not give her up. Right. And then after Diana's death, he saves the monarchy because the queen was not she was completely clueless about how important Diana was to her people. And you're right. As you may. Yeah. All, all of that drama, you know, was the and there was Charles at the center of it. You know, I mean, Helen Mirren won an Oscar for playing the queen in a film that was 100 percent about damage control. And, you know, I think that Charles had a lot of sympathy for this poor girl that he never should have married and how hard it was for her and to realize that he could never make things right for her. I'll never forget the funeral and being so impressed by how he and Prince Philip walked the streets behind the casket. And, you know, we should mention Prince Philip because Charles also had a very tortured relationship with his father, who he called brusque, harsh and hectoring. Uh, It it seems like this was an incredibly lonely childhood and that's even before the physical abuse he went through oh absolutely i mean here, here's a little boy he's down to these two, two schools cheam and you know an english uh, school lower level school and then gordon's down in in scotland but even you know prior you have to look at the relationship just on a kind of a, of a, a basic parental level in that here are some examples i mean when he when, uh, as a little boy, had the flu, when he had a tonsillectomy, when he had me broke, fell down the stairs and broke his ankle, when he uh, had an emergency appendectomy, the appendix was on the verge of bursting, his parents never visited him in the hospital. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, the queen stayed in bed in, in Buckingham Palace rather than get up and go see her little boy. As a matter of fact, Eleanor Roosevelt was visiting the night of the, uh, the day after the um, uh, operation, mm-hmm. the, uh, the appendectomy had. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was visiting the Queen, and when she realized that Charles was, you know, under in a hospital undergoing surgery, she was just shocked. I have it in the book about the Queen's indifference and yeah. lack of concern. You acted as if nothing was happening. So, and 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 Philip was a bully. I mean, he yeah. repeated, uh, you know, he reduced Charles to tears in front of other people. He made him feel, you know, it was really the Queen Mother who came to his to Charles's defense. Seeing him as a kind of sort of a sensitive soul, someone who is very different from the rest of the royal family. Philip Cotton to Anne, as you know, Philip mm-hmm. uh, and, and had the kind of personality that Philip really appreciated. 
raucous and you know that sort of thing but uh he didn't really understand the introspective thoughtful nature of his son he saw it as a profound weakness and and the queen in fact to some extent shared that belief sadly i think yeah and these are uh, obviously these are things we've heard before and and for better or worse the crown has has touched on them but one thing that's in your book that really just i i wasn't prepared for was the amount of torment and sadistic abuse he faced at school. I mean, the, the accounts of just the, the physical abuse, the emotional abuse from his peers, the being touched inappropriately by his peers. I mean, it's it's a wonder that he went through all this and came out with as much humanity as he has. As a matter of fact, it's exactly what one of his fellow students who's named in the book said. Uh, you know, it's amazing that he left with his sanity intact. That he, yeah. he emerged from that situation. How, how, and of course, how bad he, was it? How, how bad was well, it for most who don't know? Well, I mean, he was uh, routinely, it's funny because you would imagine that everybody would, that, that a future king would be treated well by his peers uh, as, a, as a boy. But no, no, if you got too close to Charles, you were considered a, a suck up was the phrase they used. Uh, so it was really sport to uh, torture him. And so basically, uh, you know, if there was a game, he was piled on and severely piled on by his fellow, uh, you know, even by his fellow teammates. Uh, at night, he was kicked in the head, punched in the head. He snored, so that made it worse. He, uh, he was punched routinely. He was uh, put in a, in, a, in a kind of a cage and, and hung up in a, a shower and sprayed with ice water and left there. Um, and, then he, and then these things, that, you know, hazing rituals of a sort that, um, we would now consider uh, abuse, you know, outright abuse. That was just considered, you know, in, in essence, part of that private school life. They, they public is a private school, uh, you know, boarding school life in uh, in Great Britain. It's uh, yeah, he he went through an awful lot, and of course, it's all revealed in his letters, and it's revealed in the conversations that other people related to me. That you know, he would he would write to his parents, who you know, pleading to be taken out of the school. He called mm. it uh, worse. Pure, in re, years later, he said it was pure hell, you know, the way he described it. He likened it to a, a Nazi prisoner of war camp. I mean, he never uh, got over the fact that he was fundamentally abandoned by his parents. Is the teddy bear story true? Oh, yes. He still he still travels with the teddy bear. Um, the teddy bear that he had as a small child is still there. For uh, the, 70 the, years. The, he's, he's, he's lived with his teddy bear for 70 years. Yes, yes. And, he's, and the only person allowed to mend it over the years. Now, it's not true now because she's quite elderly. But um, until relatively recently, his uh, childhood nanny, Mabel Anderson, uh, was the only person allowed to, to basically touch it and you know fix it up. And it needed a lot of fixing, as you can imagine, over 70 years. Uh, it, he, this quirky behavior there. I talk about in the book, uh, for example, the fact that he doesn't like he has a, a tray of round ice cubes, a tray to make round ice cubes because he doesn't like it the clinking sound that, that square ice cubes make. But that is something that the queen and the queen mother did, and Princess Margaret did as well. It's a thing in the royal family. They have a thing for round ice cubes. <laughs> you know, so it's very idiosyncratic. But um, uh, and, and many other strange habits and quirks, the, the, the toilet seat that, that he traveled, he has a custom-made toilet seat that he I've heard about with. the toilet seat, yes. And he, and he was so incensed. Relatively, again, just a, a couple of years ago, he issued a statement, a formal statement saying it's not true. But right away, his valets, two ex-valets came forward and said, oh, but it, but it is. You know, he does try. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. My guest is Christopher Anderson. He is the author of The King, The Life of Charles III. And I gotta, I gotta ask you, um, once upon a time, you were a young person who presumably at some point knew nothing about the royal family. I'm, I'm curious, what happened that so captured your fascination and your professional drive? God, you made it sound like it was so far back. Once upon a time. <laughs> well, no, but it, but but uh, but it seems like you're 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 not you're not an old man. So I know that you've been doing this for a long no, time. I so am, I know since I a very you, you seem to be have become fascinated at a young age. I did, and I, I have to tell you, I, I uh, am Charles' age, though I have a certain perspective. I can remember, and this may sound peculiar, but I was a, a Navy brat. My father was a decorated uh, naval aviator, World War II guy, but he this was his career. And so we traveled all over the place. And so I could remember people referring to we be we lived in Japan for years and other places. But whenever anybody referred to the queen, it wasn't the queen of the country we were in, you know, or the empress or whatever. It was this this I remember realizing, oh, this is a person. This is a single when you say the queen anywhere in the world, you mean Elizabeth. You really don't right. mean much of anything else. And uh, and so that stuck with me. And then when I became a reporter and I started reporting actually at 16 for a local newspaper in San Francisco and then started working for Time when I was, uh, New York Times when I was 18, and then Time Magazine the next year and, and on and on. But uh, the entire time I was fascinated by them. So when the opportunity came to be really handling all the cover- some of the coverage of Time Magazine and People Magazine, uh, I, I jumped at it. Um, I just think they're amazing. You mentioned Princess Margaret. I, I tried to land an interview with her when she visited San Francisco many, many years ago, a very famous visit. And uh, I was on the phone to her her buddy uh, Charmaine Douglas, who was like her sidekick, and uh, and and Margaret was in the other room, kind of. When we, <laughs> uh, we were having this uh, game of verbal ping pong. So I was trying to get get a sit down interview, which she wasn't giving them at the time. But so I, mm. it goes way back. You want to know the minutia? That's the minutia. How much has the Netflix series The Crown affected what you do and the world's perception of uh, your subjects? Well, isn't it fascinating that you know here we are. Uh, in a situation where, you know, there's nothing but drama and turmoil ahead, and yet what's already happened fascinates people. So I think what's going yeah. to be happening. I agree. I think people, yeah, and, and there's this. I mean, if again, if it hadn't been for Diana, uh, I, I I just don't think we we would be in this position. I don't think they'd be appealing. We wouldn't have the storyline as it as it were. Right? It's a great saga. Um, I'm just waiting to see what happens that day when. Uh, when the British people realized that uh, Camilla is their queen. Now, now yeah, they, you they, mentioned they, that before. 
I mean, as we have yeah. to get you, we're all we're all in this process of getting used to calling him King Charles and not Prince Charles. And we're all having to unlearn that. But also, is it important to make the distinction that Camilla will be queen consort and not just queen? I mean, how important is that to uh, to the overall title? Well, the consort thing is a bit of an invention. I mean, uh, the queen, uh, George the Sixth was technically the queen consort, but she was never called queen consort. This is Elizabeth's mother. The Elizabeth's mother was queen during her lifetime, prior to becoming queen mother, she was queen Elizabeth. So that is the title that really Camilla historically, I suppose, deserves. And that is what Charles is doing right now. He's trying to get rid of the consort in the, in the title. So she will be officially and everywhere known as Queen Camilla. Now, she's going to be crowned next to him on May 6th. And that's going to be the moment that will be defining, I think, because I don't think the British people are happy with it or ready for it. I've been saying it for quite a long time, you know, because Charles promised, as you know, that she would never be queen. It was the only that's way right. to sell. Yeah, the marriage, they're both divorced. I mean, you cannot, you know, until, until Charles came along, that was something because he's the head of the Church of England. Couldn't be done. Well, I Henry VIII did it. <laughs> right, but we look at we yeah. look at all the hell that his granduncle was put through because he wanted to love the woman he loved. Uh, I think that over right. the decades that maybe a bit of goodwill was engendered for Camilla as the narrative that this is the woman he's always loved has permeated the public mindset. Right. But but then again, you have this memory of her as the woman who destroyed Diana, the marriage right. to Diana. Of course. Who must have schemed behind the scenes, you know, to some extent. Uh, she was married to Andrew Parker Bowles from 23 years on most of this relation, much of this relationship. Yeah. She always wanted to be historically, you know, her great grandmother, Alice Keppel, was uh, Edward VII's mistress, famously. And when Edward VII died, uh, Queen Alexandra called Alice Keppel to the king's bedside because she knew Alice Keppel was the one when the, the real love of, of the king's life. Wow. And I think, yeah, and I think that's what Camilla has always tried to do. I think he wants, she wanted to just replicate the experience of her of her great-grandmother, I don't think she, in a million years, thought she would become Queen of England. I think that was, you know, first of all, everyone in the royal family hated her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the Queen Mother, as long as she was alive, there was no way they were going to get married. And as uh, and, and Queen, Queen Elizabeth as well uh, detested Camilla for causing so much trouble and getting and in course, the way of the... I, I can't imagine it'll help her, her PR too much if um, if word gets out about this deal that Charles made with Camilla, that he made with the Queen to name her Queen Consort. That's something that I found, quite frankly, explosive uh, in your book. I'm, I'm curious how you... When you get a story like that, first off, do you have to get other sources to corroborate? And, and I mean, it was very shocking to me. Can you explain to our listeners the deal that Charles allegedly cut with his mother to grant this title to Camilla? Well, and again, it's unspoken. It's not, you know, it, it, it was uh, an understanding. Uh, and also out by the, the famous, the men in gray behind the scenes to really run everything that Diane, uh, Diane used to talk about. Uh, yeah, they, he, a little context here. Camilla was the most hated woman uh, in the realm when Diana died. And it took uh, Charles eight years to convince the queen to let them marry, as I said. And he had to promise that he would, she would never be anything but princess consort. But he never intended to keep that promise. I wrote, I've written about that for years and years and years. He always intended to renege on this because it would be insulting to Camilla to not have the title that, you know, as the wife of the of the monarch. In his mind, that's the way he thinks. So, uh, you know, he hammered away for 17 years after his marriage. Uh, the queen routinely got a, 
an approach from Charles, you know, please, you know, get behind Camilla. She deserves to be queen. Uh, William and Harry heard it so often, they just were tired of hearing, hearing about mm. it. Uh, along comes the Jeffrey Epstein scandal and mm-hmm. uh, Prince Andrew's involvement in it. And Andrew, of course, is Elizabeth's favorite uh, child, always has been, much to uh, Charles's consternation. And um, uh, the queen wants to pay part of the $14 million settlement Andrew has to pay in a civil case related to the Epstein affair. Charles is against it. He's always been against helping Andrew out in this fashion and getting the crown involved. He thinks it's unseemly, at least. Mm. And uh, the queen really needed Charles to not object, which he could easily have done, because this money would eventually go to him. It's her personal fortune. And so February 6th rolls around, and wouldn't this be the perfect time for her to announce finally on the anniversary of the actual anniversary of her seventh, 70th year on the throne, this would be the time to say you're behind making Camilla queen. And that's what happened. And it took everybody by surprise. Yeah, when she issued that statement, it was uh, somewhat devastating to Harry and William. They didn't expect it. They were completely blindsided. And, uh, and all, yeah, all palace watchers were like, what? <laughs> how did this happen? Because we know how the queen has always felt Camilla would cause problems if she became queen. It would not be a happy outcome in terms of the health of the monarchy. You know, I'm someone who always resisted getting too into these personal stories, but then I'm married to a person who got really into the the, the the crown. And just as some folks like the tabloids, some folks like the the more highbrow <laughs> dramatizations. But um, on the subject of racism, you know, it, it's another area where... Uh, I, I, I kind of have some sympathy for Charles. I remember about a year ago, I read an interview with you with the Daily Beast, where you were talking about Prince Charles worrying, like many old people do, you know, loved loved Meghan Markle, thought she was great, walked her partially down the aisle. But you t- told this story about how he benignly one time said to Camilla, I wonder what their children will look like. You know, and Camilla said, well, they're absolutely gorgeous, I'm certain. And the way you described it and set it up, completely innocent, no hostility whatsoever. But the headline in the Daily Beast was, in all caps, yes, Prince Charles really is the royal racist, author Christopher Anderson insists. Literally, if you read the article, it's the opposite of of what you say within the text. Right. Right. I know. It was, was, uh, yeah, I was somewhat dismayed. But I have to tell you, uh, it was, I'm a grand, as I... Wrote. I'm, I'm a grandfather. I, I, as a grandparent, I can tell you we all, and even and parents, you know, you speculate on what your children are going to look like, innocently, benignly, and in a very positive and happy way. And that's what happened with Charles. So you're absolutely right. I said exactly the opposite. It was it was uh, a comment that was just spun by the uh, competing forces because the palaces are always competing. I mean, everyone was when the queen was on the throne. It was, uh, you know, William and, and Kate's people are over here and and uh, Harry and Meghan are mainly just Harry for most of the time. They married her. And, you know, these different little uh, competing forces, camps, all vying for the attention of the queen and getting their own projects, you know, pushed forward and that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, the, those people behind the scenes turned it into something toxic. And by the time it got to Harry, quite definitely, he said they, saw, they thought it was a racist remark, but initially it was not. I have several yeah. sources that were there for it. Oh, um, but that's insane. the kind of situation. That's what 
living in they're, they're living in this whirlwind of intrigue still it's quite fascinating you know? yeah their their lives are completely insane and that's something that uh you have a lot of compassion for and it comes through in the writing but before i let you go um you know i'm going to miss charles with his environmental work, I've thought for a long time that was the most likable and dynamic thing about him. He was making speeches about climate change back before we called it that in the early 80s. How do you expect the coronation to go? Uh, is this is this going to be good for him? Is he going to be OK in this job? He's getting eggs thrown at him already. Um, are you well, optimistic I, for him? Is the honeymoon already over? You know, it seems impossible. <laughs> he just became king. I mean, let's cut him some slack here. Uh, look, I guess also the economy is a bit of a problem. I hate to say that the British economy, of course, is really in trouble. And uh, the again, a, a large section of the British public uh, um, has some degree of resentment toward the, what they see as taxpayer money going to fund the lavish lifestyle of the royal family. What they, those people will not acknowledge is the fact that the, the monarchy really holds them together, you know, the national identity. Um, yeah. I mean, I just was, I was, I thought they would have a, a collective nervous breakdown when the queen passed away. And because so much of who they are is right. And we all felt that way. It was, it was just a surprise. Here's a 96 year old woman. She's been doing this job for 70 years. And we were still all shocked when she died <laughs> because, you know, I know because she, We've all lived this life. I mean, you know, who has been, as far as we're concerned, we've never been in a world without the queen in it. Never. So that's. And who's yeah, more famous? So who's who's more famous on earth? Paul McCartney? Like, no. who's a more famous? The, the Pope, maybe. Nobody. Right. Right. The Queen of England was the most famous person of the modern age. There's no question about it. Now, Charles uh, is on the road to becoming the same thing if he isn't already, just by virtue of who he is. You know, a third of the planet. Is in the Commonwealth. Um, yeah, he's on the money now. He will be. He will be. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, I think he's got a lot of uh, problems to solve. I'm, I am somewhat uh, apprehensive about about the. Uh, I mean, I'm going to be there for the, uh, the coronation on the sixth, but um, it's uh, it's a it's it's a moment fraught with history and pageantry and all the great things, but it's also going to be uh, fraught with maybe some real trouble, you know, because of the protests like the one we recently exactly. saw. Uh, and by the way, people forget that when uh, at one point, and this is the, this was you know, just before, got to get the timing right here, in the, oh yes, just before the wedding of uh, William and Kate, um, Camilla and Charles were driving through central London in their, in, in a royal limousine, it was a Bentley, and they were surrounded by a mob which rocked the car and pounded on the windows and said, off, and shouted off with their head, wow. you know, and, the, yeah. <laughs> and to her credit, Camilla said her reaction was, well, there's a first time for everything, <laughs> but, but you know, there is, you know, they're in a kind of a delicate position there. Uh, I'll say, and no matter what my estimation of this very enigmatic man uh, is forever changed by what I've learned about his tormented and painful childhood there's so much humanity in this book christopher anderson thank you so much for joining us please come back anytime i'd, I'd love to go even deeper we didn't even touch on his military record the book is the king the life of charles the third thank you so much for joining us on sirius xm i can't wait to see what comes next oh thank you john i really had a great time thank you 